Man, I'm so thankful that you're here with us, gathered with God's people uh, to worship. Uh, there's, uh, I believe, out of, out of the gifts that God has given us, the church is the best, <laughs> you know, bar none, uh, other than Jesus Christ. But the church is his <clears throat> answer um, to our longing and our desire. And, and so one, one of the things about Gideon uh, that hopefully you've learned um, through uh, the past weeks as we've been walking through this and, and even through, through Judges as a whole is that God is going to show himself for who he is. He's going to show himself real to the world uh, one way or another. Um, and so we started last week, I, I, told, I shared with you, out of the book of, of uh, Judges, the majority of it uh, has Gideon and Samson right at the center. So it covers more text than any of the rest of it. And so, um, so we're spending a couple of weeks in, uh, with Gideon, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks with Samson as well. Uh, so we assume at times that God needs us somehow, has some innate need for us to fulfill His promises to us. He needs us to help Him with His task here on earth. See, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything we have to offer. And so Gideon prepares to do battle against the Midianites and the Malachites. And so we talked last week how God called Gideon while he was hiding in the wine press. So what would happen is these Amalekites and, and, um, uh, would, would come up and the Midianites and they would, they would wait until the harvest. They would come in and swoop in and they would take uh, their crops away from them and they would take the first and the best fruits and leave them the rubble on the ground. And so when they found, uh, when God or the angel of the Lord found Gideon, he was in a wine press hiding, threshing out the wheat, right? He was hiding for his life. Uh, and so Gideon questioned God, questioned God's methods um, and, and maybe more specifically his choice. And so Gideon isn't a very impressive guy from what we take in Scripture because he says, I'm from the weakest tribe, I'm from Manasseh. Why would you choose me? I mean, I mean have you ever thought that, God, why would you use me? Why, why would you pick me? Why would you choose me? Uh, for your purpose. Um, so on PBS, uh, the great American read, uh, there was an eight-part series that explores Americans' 100 best-loved novels. And in this episode, they highlight all of these famous heroic, heroic books and characters within them. Uh, the books such as 1984, Charlotte's Web, Don Quixote, The Hunger Games, Invisible Man, uh, examine literary artists from throughout history, and, and they said everyday book lovers discussed their favorite heroes, okay? Because everybody loves a hero. But more importantly, what they discussed are the qualities and the things they see in heroes they wish they had in themselves. And so these are some of the things they said. They said as a hero, um, a hero is who we all wish we were. And, and they go on to say if we didn't have all these limitations, this is who I want to be. If I didn't have these limitations, this is what I want. And, and they went on to say, I think when we hear heroes or see them read about, we think about qualities such as courage, strength, fortitude, bravery, all those things we wish we had. And so reading about everyday hero gives us hope, right? Because we're like, if they can do it, maybe I can do that too. And so I, I think we aspire every day in some respects, to be a hero. But I think our bigger problem is maybe 
our bigger problem is is that we have a hero syndrome okay and so what i mean by that is we try to be the hero at the end of our story we try to be our own hero see god doesn't need us to be the hero at the end of our story he's already provided that and that's what we're going to learn through Gideon this morning. He's already provided that for us. And so we have an example. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Judges chapter 7. And so we're going to read um, a, a little bit about what takes place. Um, so we're going to begin in verse 9. Let me lay the landscape for you. So this all started, okay, the Midianites and the Malachites had crossed over the river, okay, and they're waiting, okay, to do battle. And, and on the other side, Gideon has gathered his army. And so in verse 9, it says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened. So go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites uh, and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. I want you to hear like locusts. I mean, can you imagine? It's just so covered uh, the ground. He said they lay out like locusts in abundance. And he said, and their camels were like the number as the sand of the seashore. So remember last week what happened? God starts whittling this army down, right? And so they get down to 300 men, right? Start out with, with a lot of men. They got down to 10,000, and then they got all the way down to 300 men. And so he's walking down, and he sees this whole scene. And then verse 13 says, When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. So, so what Gideon's doing, he's listening in on this dream in the camp of the Amalekites. Okay, and, and the Midianites, so he's listening to the stream, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp, and the Midian, and came to the tent, and struck it, that it fell, and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into the hand of Midian and all the camp. As soon, okay, it doesn't say he waited, as soon as Gideon heard this, the telling of the dream and its interpretation, it says he worshipped God. And he turned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, get up. He said, For the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets in their hands, and all of them empty jars and torches. And they went out. And he said, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp. And shout for the Lord and for Gideon. A couple of things to note here is Gideon knows who his hero is see i think sometimes and this is our big idea this morning we think god needs our help see god doesn't need us <laughs> to fulfill his mission i think sometimes we think that god somehow needs us but god doesn't need us to accomplish his mission here on this earth okay he chooses to use us 
And I think we forget that sometimes, right? We, we try to be the hero at, at the end of our story. When do we trust God or, or when do we trust in numbers, right? And so if, if you and I had gone down, we had seen the Malachites and the Midianites scattered out like locusts, right? The camels like sands on the seashore. And so God knew. He said, go down and I'm going to give this victory to you. But if you're afraid, okay, let me reassure you of who you are and who I am. See, we become aware of how dependent we are, okay? Aware of how to depend on God when we are independent, when, when, God, when we see God as independent. See, sometimes we see ourselves as independent people. See, we become aware of how, how we depend on Him and, and, and not on ourselves. See, too many men have a plan of how things are going to go. So your pastor this week had a really ingenious plan going, right? Came in, thought, man, I'm going to tackle, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to be my hero. I'm going to take care of everything. People are going to come in Sunday, and Mark, man, that's amazing. I can't believe you did that. And now they're shaking their head in shame going, I can't believe you did that, right? Well, Pastor Mark got a lean-to ladder and got up in the rafters and was going to work on checking some wire and cabling out, and the ladder gave way, and Mark fell 20 feet to the floor and uh, laid there for a few minutes, thought about getting up a couple of times till saw my ankle about this big and my leg about this big, and, and I thought I had everything in control. When do we think we have everything in control? Well, see, Gideon, the thing we learned from this story is he knows his weaknesses, he knows he doesn't have everything in control. See, people will either bring praise to God or to themselves. And so what happened in this story, you'll notice at the very end of this scene, this dream that, by the way, God sent for Gideon's benefit to strengthen and encourage him. The first thing he does is what? He worships, right? Is your first instinct in life when God does something amazing to just worship? I mean, do you stop by the side of the road Turn your car off, get out, and get down and worship God because of something He saved you from. I worship God this week after my fall because I didn't kill myself. <laughs> it could have been a lot worse. I believe God spared me, right? In, in, in His own way. I believe God obviously was trying to teach me something, maybe humility, maybe to rely on other people, not myself. See, in Revelations 4.11, it talks about worship. It says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So what happens when we set ourselves up as our own alternative God? When do we set ourselves up as God? How many people give Christianity a try just to appease their parents or their friend, right? I'll try it. Sure. You invite me to church, I'll go. In fact, they polled America, and overwhelmingly, the majority of people in Western culture said if somebody invited them to go to church, guess what? They said they would go. They said we'd show up. That doesn't mean they believe. In fact, most of them don't. But they said they'll try it out. So what happens? Well, they try it out, but they have a plan B, right? They have a fallback. They're like, if this doesn't work out, I'll go try this. Do you know God doesn't have a plan B? He only has one plan, right? From, from Genesis to Revelation, there's one plan. This is a, a messianic book, if you didn't know that. Man, I had a pr great professor 
that shared with me. He, he, uh, he was a preacher for, for 30, 40 years, and he, he held up his ratted, tattered Bible, and he said, gentlemen, this, this is about God's plan A, Jesus Christ, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. There's not a bit of this book okay, that doesn't, isn't saturated with God's plan for you and for me. So, so with God having a plan A, see, the gospel depends on God, not on us. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on me. Okay? So God does not share His glory with anyone. Right? And so he's not going to share his glory here. So you look at this, and we're talking in a minute about the unconventional way God works, right? I mean, look what he tells them. He says, Grab your trumpets, and by the way, don't forget your torches and a clay pot. And we're going to go down here against this army that's like locusts on the ground. What, what would you have done? What, I mean, what would I have done? See, but God knew that unless he whittled it down, right? Brought it down to where they had to completely depend on God who was going to get the glory. They would have given it to themselves, right? They, they would have said, hey, look what we had done. Look, look how great our army is. Look how massive we are. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Behold, he says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power in it to get wealth and, and confirm the covenant that he swore with your fathers as to this day. Okay, and, and, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after the gods and serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Likewise, the nations of the Lord makes to perish before you so shall you perish i mean i mean that's a pretty stern warning right he's like if you follow any other plan follow any other god okay you'll perish you will fail your plan will not succeed has zero probability of coming out on top see the correct response to god's sovereign plan is always worship it's always worship it's like man thank you god Thank you that that was, that was the plan, right? Thank you, God, that you said, hey, grab your trumpet and grab a clay pot and grab a torch and let me show you what God's going to do. God does amazing things when, when we just sit back and let Him work. See, see look, look at the way in which God uses the dream. Uh, remember Nebuchadnezzar uh, and Daniel, right? So, so what do, when, when Daniel comes in and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, Right? And Daniel's the only one that can interpret this dream. So, so notice how God many times uses pagan people to teach us. Right? And so in this camp of the Malachites and the, and the Midianites, he used these pagan people, these people who didn't trust God, they didn't believe in God, to teach him a lesson. See, think of the way in which God weans us off of our dependence on this world and other things, right? Into a dependence on Him. It's like a child. Right? It's like a child who's, who's just, just in, in the formation stages. So when you become a follower of Christ, you're like that infant. Right? I mean, you think of any baby. I mean, the most helpless creatures on the face of the earth is a baby. Right? They need us for everything. They need everything. Well, my granddaughter, uh, Evelyn, is becoming quite the little independent child. Okay, now, she pulls up. Man, her, she gets away from her mom really quick. She gets into everything. She loves the dogs. Chew toys. Those are her favorite. Right? She gets into everything. Well, 
are we not the same way? We get a little bit of independence. We get that independence streak, and then we just go off and kind of get into this and get into that, and we forget about who brought us here. And, and so there's a whole um, line of thinking um, called uh, moral relativism, okay? And, and that's a big word, but let me explain what it means. It means that what you say is right for you is okay, and what I say is right for me. There's no black and white. There's no clear lines. Look at our world today. They have, I mean, those lines have not been drawn. There's no moral or ethical uh, line at all, okay? And this has been obliterated. And, and what happens when we do that as Christians? What happens when we do that as a church? Well, what we're saying, we're setting ourselves up as our own God. How have we become the Happy Meal culture of our world today? Basically, the idea of the Happy Meal is what? Makes you happy, Right? <laughs> So we think that God is just here to make me happy. That's relativism. He's just here to please me. It's all about me. And it's, you, go, go ask some folks today. You'll find that that is a pervasive belief in our church today. Church is here to make me happy. God's just here at my beck and call to make me happy. Well, number two, God doesn't save us through expected means and strength, does he? He doesn't save us the way we think we should be saved. And so you look at this story, he says, Hey, I'm going to take my 300 men. It says, get up. Get up. And, and I'm going to show you what God will do. I'm going to show you. See, God strips away everything we think we need, right? How many of you have some things that you think you can't do without? Anybody? I do. <laughs> there are things in my day life, man, I don't know what I would do if that went away, right? I.e., for most people, it's a cell phone, right? I mean, they literally have a, a, a psychological diagnosis for your cell phone, right? That if it were taken away from you, people go through withdrawals. Can you believe that? Literally like they were on drugs because they're so tied to those things. How do we become so tied to things and we forget to, to make do with what God's given us or we think we need more, right? And so Gideon, he didn't say, hey God, by the way, I know you said 300 men would work, Give me a couple of hundred more. I think it would be better that way, right? Could they at least have, have a dagger, maybe not a sword. Give them some weapon, okay? They need something. Um, so my wife brought home several weeks back uh, uh, a couple of boxes full of stuff from my childhood, from my high school years. Most of it I really could care less about. I haven't seen it in 20 years. I, I don't care. But there was a lot of stuff in there from my grandparents and my heritage one of the things I found in the bottom of the box um, was this old watch. So um, you'll notice the band is torn. As long as I can remember, my granddad had this watch in his pocket. He hung it from his golf bag. He'd hang it from, from the mirror in his truck. And I, I always wondered, why did he hang on to this tattered, this worn I mean, go, my granddad could have afforded another watch. Go buy another watch, granddad. You know, the amazing thing is, when I pulled this out to set it, you know what happened? The second hand began to move. <laughs> I'm like, dude, this thing is ancient, and it still works. You know, my granddad taught me some really great lessons growing up, and he even taught me a lesson in his death, is to be satisfied with what I have, you know, that, that it's enough. I don't need more. I don't need more to be happy or satisfied. Are we happy and satisfied with what God has given us? Is he enough? Is he enough to satisfy us? And so I think getting here saying God is enough, he will take care of us. 
See, the underlying story of Gideon is 300 wielding these trumpets and these torches in his jar is that God is in the business of using unexpected things to teach us that He is greater. See, when do we trust God and not in the numbers? I love Hebrews 11, 32-34 when we tie the Old Testament and New Testament together. Hebrews does it best. I think pretty soon we're going to go through Hebrews. I was real close to doing that this go-around. But let me read you what it says in Hebrews 11, 32-34. says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, but foreign armies, they would go and they would fight and they would win. See, healing in our weakness. Uh, N.T. Wright wrote this in, in all uh, God's worth in Christianity today. He said, we live in a world full of people struggling to be or at least to appear strong in order not to be weak. We live in a culture, let me read that one more time, and people just want to be, right? They want to appear strong and not show weakness. I mean, I, don't, I grew up in, in, in a time where you didn't show weakness, right? Especially men crying. Men didn't cry. You don't do that. That shows weakness, right? And so you, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and many of us do that today, right? That was my initial instinct when I fell. I'm like, rub some dirt on it and go on. Okay, you're good. Okay, you can do this, right? Until I made it about two feet over here. I'm like... Dude, that hurts. I can't do that, right? But we, we do that, don't we? But we learn that we are weak when we remember that He is strong. That's when we learn that we are weak. It's when we remember how strong He is. See, God does not work simply in spite of our weakness. He works because of it. Because He knows who you are. Listen to me, child. He knows who you are. He knows our weakness. How does this work practically speaking? Well, the principle is the basis of salvation itself, right? You can't come to God on your own. I can't, I can't save myself. See, the principle explains how repentance works, right? I can't truly repent of my sins if I still believe I can do it on my own, can I? No, that's not repentance, okay? That's, that's, that's wishful thinking. I'm sorry I did that, right? This principle explains how we almost always grow as Christians, in our weakness. So here's the paradox of God. He takes away almost everything that could conceivably be used. Conceivably be used in battle. I've never heard of any other army than God's winning a battle with a trumpet. I played trumpet for a while. It's a pretty cool instrument. In fact, I used to have this silver box Stradivarius trumpet. Okay? I don't think I could win a battle with that, okay? I beat him over the head a couple of times. That's it, right? I don't even think I could knock somebody unconscious with it. So he took away all that they had to show his strength. God reveals who he is. One of my favorite uh, revealings where God revealed who he was, was in, is in 2 Kings chapter 6. When, uh, when God revealed uh, to Elisha, that, that the angel of the Lord, that the armies 
that were coming upon them, okay, that God's army was stronger. Um, I'm going to read this to you. This is an amazing story. It says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, he went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So you can imagine a startling sight. They rise up early in the morning, and, and, and this army is surrounding their camp. And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those that are with them. Right? I'm sure Gideon's army is wondering this right now in this story, right? But it says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he, and, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I mean, man, picture this scene. Sorry, I can't sit down to tell you this because... It amazes me what God will do. The hills around them, when God opened their eyes, they saw the army of the Lord surrounding their enemies. Think about that. Do you ever think about that when the enemy comes against you? That the army of the Lord is surrounding you day and night. There is a battle going on, okay, in, in the heavenly places, but it's going on in a realm, in a place we can't see. Right? And this is one of the few times in history where God opened the eyes of man so that they could see what he was doing. And so they looked and they saw these armies all around it and said, when, when the Syrians came down against them, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike the people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way. And this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the men who you seek. And I will lead them to Samaria. See, as soon as all of this had taken place. See, we cannot be saved if we think we are good or able enough. If you think you are good or able enough, we can't be saved. See, not until we fully understand our human condition, our weakness, right? Romans 5, 1-11 spells this out really clearly. It says we're justified by faith alone. It says through Him we have gained access. It says we rejoice in our sufferings. Hope does not put us to shame. God shows His love for us. And while we were weak at the right time, He chose to save us. So we rejoice in our weakness. Number three, God goes out of His way to assure His people. So God goes out of His way to assure you and me. Does He have to do that? No, He doesn't. He doesn't have to give us any assurance. He's God. But after reducing the ranks of his army, he gives this picture of assurance. So God sent Gideon to the enemy's camp to listen in on this conversation they were having. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, God holds the brain of the sleeping Arab in the hand and impresses it as he pleases. So God held the brains of, of this, this Midianite soldier in arms. See, the whole book of 1 John is written to assure us so that we may know we have salvation. So you may know. In fact, 1 John 2, 3, it says, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. See, the Spirit Himself bears witness to us, does He not? Bears witness in my life and your life. See, God often gives us what we need when we do what He asks, 
right? He often gives, I think sometimes this is, a, this is a big misconception in Christianity, is God doesn't want to give us what we need. And also I said, he doesn't give you what you want. God, God doesn't give you what you want. God gives you what you need. See, we like Gideon are in a repeated need of assurance. Every day, I'm continually needing assurance. See, the impression we get is that Gideon is weak. He needed the angel uh, to, to, to bring and burn up the, 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 the sacrifice on the altar. He needed the fleece to show him who God was. How many resolutions and promise have we made to God that we have not kept? See, we need God's constant reassurance and reminder. So how does God reassure us? How does He reassure you of His presence? I think there are three ways. I think He, he assures us through His direct Word. So when, when I read this book, right, I am reassured of who He is. So, so He gives His direct Word to me. We are strengthened when we read His words. We're encouraged by that. God assures us through other people. I mean, you, you guys this morning, after, after mocking me a little bit, which I deserve it, okay, I gave me some reassurance. It's going to be okay, Pastor Mark. What do you need? Can I help you? How can I serve today, right? It's okay. I'm, I'm a big boy. I can handle it. But, but the, the reassurance and the encouragement, we need other people around us. Everyone needs people who are close to them who will speak truth into their lives. I mean, God help you if you don't have somebody like that. I don't know how, how you would make it through this life without that. God assures us through circumstances of life. So he puts us in the situations he puts us in for a reason. It just happens to be at the right place at the right time. I don't believe in coincidence with God. You know that? God doesn't work by coincidence, right? He works by divine providence in your life. He does. Last thing, the enemy of God's people are not as strong as they appear. How often do we think, man, the enemy's pretty strong. See, we know the enemy's plans. We know what he has planned. There was a battle um, in 1862 that lasted for 12 hours, one of the bl bloodiest battles of the Civil War. 10,000 Confederate casualties, even more on the Union side. Though militarily, a, a draw, there, there was a, 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 a military drawing. The mediocre Union general, George McClellan, He's able to end the brilliant conflict. Robert E. Lee's thrust into Maryland, forcing him to retire across the Potomac. So how is this possible? Well, two Union soldiers found a copy of Lee's battle plan. That is never a good sign. <laughs> when they can cross over and they get your battle plan, you're sunk. <laughs> That's not good, right? Because most armies, well... Hopefully you have another plan, but I'm taking they didn't. There was no plan B for them. They only have one battle plan, right? So how is this possible? Well, in some respect, we are, are, are no match for our adversary. And I, I, so I want to tell you this. Don't underestimate Satan, okay? But don't overestimate his power over you. Because I think sometimes we do the opposite, right? Sometimes, sometimes we underestimate the enemy, right? But sometimes we overestimate what he can do in our lives, right? He doesn't have the power we think he does over us. But as with General McClellan, our enemy's plans have fallen into our hands. We know his plans, right? To seek and to destroy you. 
His plans are to creep around like a roaring lion waiting to pounce on you at your weakest moment. He desires to destroy you. And He does it in your family. He does it in your marriage. He does it in your mind. He does it in your heart. He does it in your church. He does it in all of these ways. Zechariah 4, 5-7 says, Then the angel of the Lord talked with me and answered me and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Guess what? You have a greater power resting inside of you than the world does. You have the spirit of the living God. And it is inside of your life. See, our battle plan is very specific. It's very clear. It's to tap into what He's already given us. He's giving you the resources and the tools to be victorious. So look at the battle plan. Here's the battle plan that, um, that, that, that God gave Gideon. He divides his army into three groups. Doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So you would think a better battle plan is to keep your forces together, right? You only have 300 men. My goodness. So now you're going you're gonna to divide it by three. He tells them to only take a clay pot, a trumpet, and a torch. Doesn't make sense. Guess what? They do it. Okay? And first, it, it, it does away with the difference in their strength. Second, it does away with the difference in, 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 um, in, in, in their numbers. Okay? And third, it, it takes into consideration the time that the army would be at their weakest. So look, look at the battle, beginning in verse 19. It says, so Gideon and the, and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they, they blew their trumpets and they smashed their jars and, that were in their hands and then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their hands and the torches and, and, and their right hands and the trumpets to blow. It says they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in place around the camp. And all the army ran and cried and fled. So, so let, me, let me explain to you what happened. So the battle was chosen to take place at the changing of the guard. Okay, first you have men going back to their tents. So, th- so this is what's happening. There's a transfer, okay? So you have kind of, I mean, these camps, they were not that big, okay? And so you have lots of men going back and forth, right? And so in, in the dark, I mean, they didn't have street lights. It's hard to tell who's who. Right? And so when they saw these torches and they heard the trumpets sounded and they heard the yelling, right? They assumed the enemy had already broken their flanks and were in their camp. They thought they were there. And it said they ran, they fled. I mean, the, the most amazing thing about this unmilitary campaign, I mean, no military genius would have thought this up. This would be ridiculous. I mean, I, I, was, I was in the military during, during the Gulf War, okay? And we had some great leaders during that time, but I guarantee you that would not have been their plan to go to battle. See, even in our success, supposed success, it always gives us the opportunity and the means, okay? So God always gives you the opportunity and the means to be successful. Think about that. You are not where you're at. You're not in the job you're in. You're not in the position you are just by chance, right? God gave you that opportunity. He gave you the means to be successful. See, here's the twist in the whole story. 
at the end of this, and I'll, I'll tell you the rest of the story, so they, they fled, okay? And so Gideon's army is chasing them, okay? So in the first meeting of Gideon and the Lord, he's in the wine press, right? Threshing out the wheat. The first reassurance of God's presence took place at a rock where God consumed the sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord burned up that offering. Now the kings of their enemies, and this is, this is how God works. The kings of their enemies, God used Gideon to defeat one where? At a wine press and the other one on a rock. You don't think my God's good? I mean, I, I wonder if Gideon in the back of his mind is replaying that. Man, I need all this reassurance. And God was with me all the time. He was here. He was working his plan out. See, the enemies of God's people are truly not as strong as they appear. See, none could return home singing of what they had done, right? So they could do is raise their trumpet in the air, right? And that torch... Say, God did this. I didn't do this. What do you value above all else in your life? What are the things that are most valuable to you? Initially, I'll say my children. I don't guess God has gifted them to me. I don't see them as possessions, maybe necessarily materially. Uh, But yeah, I mean, there are things we value. There's things that we all value. If we value ourselves above all else, our difficult situation is that we don't see the great hopefulness is in God. See, see what happens is if we value our, ourselves above all else, we see uh, our difficult situation as hopeless, right? We see the problem that we're currently in as bleak, as impossible. But if we value God above everything else, what do we see? We see things as hope-filled. I see the world today as there's great hope, right? There's great hope for our situation. And there's a promise of victory. In fact, John Owen wrote this. He said, however strong a castle may be, if a treacherous party resides inside, the castle cannot be kept safe from the enemy. Traitors occupy our own hearts, ready to side with every temptation and surrender to them all. Remember we talked about last week, the enemy inside of our camp, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of of all his disciples who have deserted him. On the cross of Christ, he utterly died alone. But what what was he surrounded by? Evil on every side. He was crucified in between two thieves right on the cross. He had those down below hurling insults at him, gambling for his clothes. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer goes on and says, for this cause he had come, To bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a a closed-off life, but in the thick of their foes. So, So Jesus was crucified between these two thieves, one hurling insults at Him, but but the, the other is begging for what? Mercy and forgiveness from a holy and a righteous God. See, just like Gideon, we don't fight alone. We don't fight alone. I want to give you one last word uh, to write down this morning. Or just think about it. Think about the word control. Control. What are you currently trying to control? 
We all try to control things in our life, do we not? We try to control all kinds of things. We are currently trying to control something. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's a, a, a current situation you find yourself in. What would have happened if Gideon had taken control of the situation and not let God lead? It would have failed. If, if he said, oh, I'm taking this back, God, you have no, you're, you're crazy. You have no idea what we're up against. See, Gideon didn't take control. See, while God does not need our help, right? But here's the good news. He still wants a relationship with you. Even though he doesn't need our help, he doesn't need us for any of that. He comes looking for us. In fact, in Zephaniah, it says the eyes of the Lord are moving to and fro throughout this earth, looking for those whose hearts are completely his. He is pursuing you, and he pursues me. For a love relationship that I don't deserve, but he freely gives to me. I don't don't know where you're at this morning. You know, that was me for many years. I I wonder, you know, how God brings reassurance into our life. And as I dug through the cobwebs of that box, this is what I found. God is good. He reminds us over and over and over again that he is in control. And I'm not. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. that your army and your might and your strength overcome our weaknesses every, every day. And Father, I, <laughs> I've prayed at times like Elisha, God, just, just reveal yourself, reveal your army. Let me, let me see what's going on. I just need that reassurance. But Father, I don't know that for many of us, even if we saw the mighty hand of God, that we'd even recognize it because we've fallen so into the world and what it says is strength and His power. Father, I'm praying this morning for a transformed heart and life for every person here, Father. God, that You work on our lives. That where You, where we are weak, You are so strong. Where we are incapable, God, You are so capable. Where we are hopeless, you're hopeful. Where we are distraught, God, you're victorious in every area of our life, Father. And so, Father, I pray for those out there this morning that um, don't know you. I pray that you would bring complete peace into their life, that the Shema that was broken between us and you, Father, would be restored, and that you would heal their lives and bring them into a relationship with you. And for those of us who know you, Father, I pray that every day we'd be strengthened to know that that in our weakness, God, you are strong. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in your amazing name. Amen.